0: This is lesson number five. I'm going to show you what I'm calling branches of theology. I'm going to show you seven branches of theology. There could be eight, but I'm going to go with seven. Seven branches. Now, please understand this. Don't look at the screen and say, this is not spiritual. Let's talk about speaking in tongues. This is very, very significant to understanding the scriptures. Seven branches of theology. And I'm going to go through them step by step by step all right i want to talk about this this concept here it's the concept of logos it's found in john 1 and verse 1 and the bible puts it like this in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god well the translation of the term word is this word here logos you can say it logos or logos in the beginning was the logos that Logos was with God, and it was God. When the English translators translated it, they then translated the word, word. But in its original meaning, it means first thought. Logos is always thought. In the beginning was the thought. The thought was with God, who was the thinker. And of course, the thinker was his thought, or the thought was God. But John moves it one step further, and John says, for you to understand thought, it comes out as word. Word is the expression of thought. If you speak, we can understand what you are thinking. I'm going to show you how logos is actually doctrine in the Bible. Then I'm going to show you how it's attached to all the various branches of of theology. Logos is thought. Thought becomes word. When we speak word, people have something to reason about. The reasoning of thought is called conversation, isn't it? When people begin to reason out their thoughts in words, they're having conversation or their reasoning. These are all definitions, by the way, of the term logos. And once we start reasoning, we can come to something called doctrine or teaching. So logos becomes word, or thought rather, thought becomes word, word becomes teaching, teaching then becomes the doctrine. The idea of doctrine is that which is taught. So we're being taught something. Doctrine is connected to teaching. That's why Paul says, until I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and to teaching or doctrine." It's important for us to understand this. God has a doctrine, because obviously John 1 teaches us that, but the devil also has a doctrine. I showed you that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. If you look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, you will see there that there's the doctrine of Balaam. So everyone has a thought, produces a word, a reasoning, a teaching, a doctrine. All right? It's also the term that we use for study, study. A doctrine is something we study. So once we know what the doctrine is, our job is to study that doctrine or the teaching. Okay, let's go a little further. Generally, when you see logos attached to English words, it's with this O-L-O-G-Y, it's an ology. So whenever you have an English word and it it ends with O-L-O-G-Y, That's a doctrine, or a thought, or a study, or a discipline. So let me give you an example, something totally unbiblical. Biology. Got that? So if you know what bios is, and I've already told you what logos is. So bios is life. Logos is the thought, the word, the reasoning, the study of life. So when I'm studying biology, I'm learning the doctrine of life make sense sit down and you say well let's go to school let's do some counseling and the guy says i'm going to teach you psychology and right there you see it if you know what the psyche is you know what logos is then we know that we're studying the doctrine of the psyche or the mind it's just that simple so whenever you see ology attack you're you're doing the study of something or you're understanding the doctrine of something Okay, so keep this in mind because all the branches will end with Logos. By the way, ology is the English transliteration of the word Logos. Okay, and I'll show you that in just, in just one second. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something called systematic theology. And this is just how people have tried to understand what are the themes of the Bible? What are the various doctrines of the Bible? There are two ways to understand this. I've chosen systematic, but there's another way, and I've got some resources for you tonight. Another way of studying the different themes or doctrines of the Bible is to study it by by testament. So you can actually study something called Old Testament theology. And if you're going to study Old Testament theology, then you can look at, you know, God in the Old Testament. What does the Bible say about God in the Old Testament? Different from what the Bible may say about God in the New Covenant. What does the Bible say about the church in the Old Testament? What does it say about the New? That's called biblical theology. So I've got a book over here called Old Testament Theology. That's what they're doing there. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the doctrines in a systematic way based on how they are laid out in the scriptures, starting with Genesis 1 and and forward. So we're going to do it in a systematic or an orderly way. It's called systematic theology. All right, here's the first one. Of course, the first branch of theology is this, it's called theology. And the distinction here now is theology, again, using the definition, it's the logos about theos. It's the reasoning, the thought, or the doctrine. The word theos means God. This is called theology proper. I'm going to show you how it's different from all the other branches. So here now, we're going to look at God. Can I say this? as a subject by himself if i can use those terms and we're going to study him how is he presented in the scriptures and i'm going to show you some examples but before i do that can i show you something these are two notes i want you to understand this is how education has evolved over the centuries in the middle ages theology was actually the queen of all the sciences did you know that In the Middle Ages, during the time of men like Thomas Aquinas, theology was actually the queen. When you went to school, you could not not study theology. It was the queen of all the sciences, and primarily so in places like Europe. They went to school to study theology. It also points to the place of the church in society during that time. The church had a prominent place. Now the church has more of a back seat and then we, we believe that there are secular studies. And in most cases, to understand God, you go to these separate schools called Bible colleges, separate from universities. And even universities that have divinity schools, put them over here, separate from these arts and humanities and things like that. But I thought this was interesting that there was a time when you went to school. This was actually one of the high points of study. Here's another note. Many of the major universities that you see now in North America they were first seminaries. So you talk about Yale and Harvard and Princeton and so on and so on. These universities were first established to train ministers and missionaries. And over time of course guess guess who always gets pushed to the peripheries? God always he gets pushed out of society. And something else fills that void. And then in the corner now, you have divinity schools like the Harvard Divinity School. But it's not as prominent as when the school was was founded. If you do any research on some of these major universities, you'll see that their mottos come straight out of the scriptures. In fact, some of their mottos are actually scriptural verses. I was at a school in Aurora. It's a boys' school. And I looked on the wall. It's an all-boys' school one of the top boys schools in, in in canada and their motto was quit you like men be strong first corinthians i said that's amazing because this is the essence i mean god was at the foundation of education we just sort of kicked him out of the classroom that's that i think is an evolution that we've got to somehow recover but let's continue now. So when we're doing theology, again, we're studying the doctrine of God. Why is this the first one? Because God is the first subject represented within the word of God. In the beginning, God. Isn't that, isn't that significant? Not in the beginning, sin. Not in the beginning, salvation. Not in the beginning, Satan. Not in the beginning, angels. Not in the beginning, creation. In the beginning, God. So he is the first subject of the scriptures, the first one to be studied. Now, I'm going to say this to everyone. When we enter any sort of study, whether it's the scriptures, systematic theology, we must enter it with humility of spirit. This is so important because as we go deeper into this, you're going to see that the more you study, it's the more you realize that you know nothing. It's going to happen. I I promise you, people that purport to know a lot about God have not studied. Romans 11, verse 33, put that on your fridge. We serve a God whose ways are past finding out. That's the essence of infinitesimal. God is beyond our learning. And that which we know about him, guess how we know it? He has revealed it to us. Do you see that? The only way we can know him is if he reveals it to us. So can I make a bold statement? What we have in the Bible is what God has revealed to us. It's not everything about him. It's what he feels we need to know for this journey to get to him. But when we get to him, we'll find out that the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. 2nd Chronicles 6:18 Now think about that Solomon did not say that the heavens cannot contain him He he seems to suggest that there are layers and levels to the heavens and all of those layers whether the third seventh they cannot contain all who God is Can you imagine someone who just knows the book of Psalms and they try to say I know God give you one more example after writing two-thirds of the new testament near the end of his life the book of philippians what does paul say in philippians chapter 3 oh that i might know him but you just wrote two-thirds of the new testament and you went to the third heavens and saw things that were not lawful to be spoken then you turn around and tell us oh that i might know him the more we study god the more we study theology it humbles us realize that we really don't know the god that we serve all right so this is where we start we start with theology the doctrine of god here what we're really doing is we're studying god in these ways we're studying him as creator we're studying him as as father and again he's revealing this to us in the scriptures we're studying him as a god that's omniscient meaning he has all knowledge He has what's called omniscience. He knows all things. And each of these, can I say, categories, you can write books on them. So if you just wanted to talk about God as creator, you can write books and books and books on books on books on books about God as creator. Think about trying to understand God as omnipotent. God is ubiquitous, meaning that he is everywhere. Listen to this definition. Tell me if this makes sense to the human mind. The word ubiquity comes from the word omnipresent. And what it means is that, listen to this, the totality of God is in every conceivable space at the same time. Can your mind fathom that? I didn't say that we took God and stretched him out. (laughs) I said the totality of God is in every conceivable space at the same time that is beyond human comprehension isn't it that all of god is here all of god is here all of god is there all of god is everywhere and if i take the wings of the morning (laughs) fly to the if i make my bed where behold he is so now you step back and say god is omnipresent so then and then watch this The idea that God is with us then has to have levels because there's never a time that he's not. Would that be right? So there's never a time that he's not with us. So there has to be degrees of understanding God's presence. So this is what theology proper. We can study God by his attributes. God is love. God is peace. Whatever the attributes are, all of these things fall under theology proper. And we can spend a lifetime, an eternity, studying God just by himself. There are arguments as to whether or not we should use he. Have you heard these arguments? Pronouns like he for God. You can tell me what you think afterwards. I've, I've known some of the arguments that God is not a he. God is a spirit. So there's arguments there. And it goes on and on. There's those people that feel that God, if he's a he and he's a spirit and he's the creator of all of us, then there's no reason why he can't also be a she. (laughs) And all the ladies said. (laughs) So all of these arguments come under understanding the doctrine of God. Systematically. The second one, the second doctrine that we're looking at is called pneumatology. And again, not difficult. Pneuma. When someone has a breathing problem, they have pneumonia, right? Something affecting their lungs. Pneumonia. Well, pneumatology is the study of or the doctrine of the Spirit. And the reason why I think this comes second is after in the beginning God created and the earth was without form and void and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So pneumatology is the doctrine of the spirit, how the spirit is presented throughout the scriptures, how the spirit of God is presented throughout the scriptures. I could go on for hours talking to you about how different groups see the Holy Spirit. Depending on what side of the camps you fall on, there's an exalted view of the Holy Spirit active and present in the church. Fall on another side, he does different things. It all depends on, again, again, How you approach your theology. Pneumatology. Pneuma is a Greek word, by the way. All of these are Greek terms because if I were using Hebrew, I wouldn't say pneuma, I would say ruach. But I'm using all Greek terms. Pneuma comes to us from from the Greek spirit logos, the thought, the study, the doctrine of the spirit. How do I understand the Holy Spirit? In the scriptures? How do I understand Him? <laughs> Again, some groups fight over it, Him. <laughs> I've heard people get very upset and almost want to storm out of rooms. Don't call the Holy Spirit it, it, it's Him. I don't know if all that is necessary, but that's how deeply entrenched people can be. By the way, when you study theology, it's also called dogma. And that's where we get the word dogmatic. You know, when somebody's very opinionated about something, we say, don't be so dogmatic. Dogma is what we think to be true. That's dogma. And dogma just doesn't exist in religious circles. You can be politically dogmatic. All depends on what subject you're talking about. But this is dogma. So there are two ways we can look at the Spirit. We can look at the Spirit in the Old Testament. And again, don't think this is strange. There are people that are arguing about this. For instance, in a classic, a classical Pentecostal argument, the Pentecostal will say, the Holy Spirit was not poured out until the day of Pentecost. Therefore, those people in the Old Testament weren't filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And they would go to John 7, maybe verse 39. And Jesus said, you know, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living waters. This he spoke of the Spirit, for the Spirit was not yet given. So those people in the Old Testament, they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit like we were, brother. We were filled with the Holy Spirit. But then you come, you go to Psalm 51, verse 11, and David, when he's praying, he says, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So then you have to reckon with those kind of things and just understand that people have struggled to understand the Spirit's presence. Most people that I know within certain camps believe that the Holy Spirit came, rested upon people, and then departed. And they teach that. So the Holy Spirit would come, rest upon Elijah, he would do what he needed to do, and the Holy Spirit left. And that's what they believe. Other people believe that there are faithful men and women who were filled with the Holy Spirit, just like we're filled with the Holy Spirit today. And that giving on the day of Pentecost was a universal giving, not an individual giving. Just depends on how you study the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And of course, then we have New Testament pneumatology. Very few arguments here, unless you are non-charismatic, because in Acts, the Bible says that the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. They were all filled with the Spirit. And Paul continues to emphasize the importance of being filled up with the Spirit. Okay? Acts 2 and 4. I'm amazed at something, though. I don't know if you're amazed at it. I'm amazed at how many Christians say that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, but we think different thoughts. (laughs) that's amazing to me that we're watch you're filled with the spirit i'm filled with the spirit you're filled with the spirit but when it comes to the bible we see it differently got to be careful now that we're not inadvertently teaching a god of confusion because if you're filled with the spirit you're filled with the spirit. we should all be thinking So then we've got to go a little deeper and find out why do we all see things though we have the same spirit those are deeper questions we've got to ask ourselves okay but that's a new testament pneumatology okay third branch third branch i don't know if any have heard of this one before it's called hamartology and of course this is the study of sin hamartia is the greek word sin this is the study of sin the doctrine of sin and of course because we're doing it systematically after god and the spirit and we're going to put creation with the in the god category that's one of the works of god um, we then come to genesis 3 and we find out that humanity has committed some form of sin so here's a definition that i want you to get and i think it's, it's very very good The word hamartia or hamartia, it literally means, watch, to miss the mark. Isn't that an interesting word? Like there's a mark in front of you, you're supposed to shoot for it, but you come up short of it. So by definition, sin is missing a mark. And when you think of it like that, something should come to your mind. Philippians should come to your mind not that i have already attained but this one thing i do i press toward the the mark so there is a standard that god has set and sin is always falling short of that standard a missing of the mark now the house of sin can be defined differently whether that's disobedience whatever it may be but in essence sin is the study of those who are missing the mark just coming short of some standard that God has set. I'm going to tell you what I think that mark is in just just a moment. We can study sin as a principle. We can also study it as a power. In the day that you eat, you shall surely die. There's a principle involved there. You've broken a principle. We can study it as a power. It's a power that brings. Sin brings death. By one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. It's a power. Watch this one. Paul says that we were sold into sin. So sin can be seen as something that can hold us captive, meaning that we need to be loosed from captivity or purchased from the power of sin. And you were playing that today, right? The power of sin is broken. So sin can be seen as a power, can also be seen as as a principle. Let's go a little further here. Sin can also be seen as an evil of choice. Don't eat that, eat that. In the day that you choose that, something's going to happen. So it's an evil of choice. Paul puts it like this. All have sinned and fallen short of something. There's an evil of choice. And so wrapped up in the idea of sin is the idea of choosing Wrapped up in the idea of righteousness would also be the idea of choosing. And God does that. Behold, I set before you, life, death, blessings, and curses. And then he puts this word in choose. So sin has something to do with our choices. It's connected to our choices. And it's seen as an evil of choice. I remember I told you I was going to tell you what the, the mark is. I believe that the mark is the glory of God. I believe that's the mark that God sets what's the glory of God it's the expression of God in the earth that's the mark the glory of God and when we sin we come short of expressing who God is in the world Paul says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God the expression of who God God is hematology all right how are we doing so far we're at number four Four or five? Four. So here, number four, we're going to look at something called Christology. Again, Christ and the Logos. This is the doctrine of Christ and specifically the doctrine of the anointing or of the anointed one. If it's the doctrine of Christ, we can study this in the old covenants before we even get to the New Covenant. Do you understand what I mean? So, let me show what I mean. Because Christ refers to a specific authority that has been given by God to individuals. You can study the doctrine of Christ in the Old Testament. For instance, Moses is a Christ type, correct? Because he's anointed of God. And we can see something of the work of Jesus Christ in the work of Moses, Anyone that you see being anointed, David becomes a Christ type because the anointing is poured or he's authorized to do what he does. We can study Christology, watch, before the literal coming of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I just said? We can study Christology before the literal coming. So all of these individuals that you see that were anointed, they were Christ types and we can study the things that they do to learn something about ultimately what the anointed one himself would do when he comes so if moses was a deliverer when jesus comes what do you think he's going to do he's going to deliver people if Mo- if david was a king and anointed to sit on a throne what do you think he's going to be he's going to be a king If Elijah was a prophet, he's going to be a prophet when he he comes. Christos, anointed or anoint- anointing rather, or anointed one, logos doctrine. When we study Christology, we're studying the doctrine of the anointed one. You could even put plural there, anointed ones. Jesus asked the question in Matthew's gospel. He says, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In verse 16, Peter answers. He says, Thou art the christ son of the living god thou art the anointed one okay christology is very very powerful as well too people ask questions uh where was jesus before he came (laughs) you hear so many questions for instance a gentleman came to me and said he said you know he said i believe this about jesus he said he said uh jesus who was he praying to in the garden And I said, well, God, (laughs) who do men pray to? And he said, but you said he's God. And I said, well, I also told you that he's a person. And so part of the mystery of studying Jesus as the Christ is understanding how he is. This is a mystery, how he is both God and man at the same time. That's not easy to understand. It isn't. People say, well, well Jesus is God and man. And they just frivolously say it like that. It's not easy to understand how someone could be at once God and at the same time man and never bleed those two experiences into each other. So when he's hungry, he is genuinely hungry. Correct? But is God ever hungry? And when he rises up to command the wind and the waves to be still, you can see how these two, can I say, natures work simultaneously within this one person in a way that it's beyond our understanding. One point he needs to pray to God, but then we say, watch, Jesus is God. And if you don't know how to explain this to people properly you'll end up confusing them because if you say to someone jesus is god and then over here you see jesus praying to god then people can ask which god is he and so we have to be able to explain how to understand his humanity working perfectly with his deity i tend to believe that that's how we're supposed to live our lives the deity of god working perfectly with our humanity but it isn't easy to to explain There are two ways we can study the anointing. We can study it. This is a fancy word, but it's not that difficult. We can study it ontologically. And the word ontologically comes from the word ontic, which means being. We can study Christ based on who he is. Who is he? What does he mean when he calls himself the son of man? Who is he when he refers to, or John refers to him as the lamb of God? Who is he when he's referred to as the Messiah? That's ontological Christology. We're studying his being. It is his being that leads us to the next level of study because who he is, listen to this, moves us here to his function, what he does. Once we know who he is, we can understand what he does. So ontological Christology takes us to functional Can't be this, no sorry, cannot not be this and do this. So for instance, he cannot be the savior of the world if we don't understand certain things about who he is. So function now has to do with his work. What does he do? If he is the Messiah, what does he do? If he is the Lamb of God, what does he do? If he is the Son of Man, what does he do? His being determines his doing. It's very significant to understand. That's why I think when Peter got it right, he says, I can give you the keys to the kingdom because you understand my being and you'll also understand my doing. Remember what he says? After Peter gets it right and says, thou art the Christ, what does he then say? Upon this rock I will build my... That's his doing. But it comes out of understanding his being. And if anyone can build the church... This person can build it. So functional Christology. And again, I might ask you a question when we get to the Gospels. What function is Jesus doing right now when we look at a particular text in the Gospels? And you'll be able to say, oh, he's acting as this. He's acting as high priest in this moment. Can give you an example. Uh, When he comes from the grave in the Gospel of John, and he's in the garden, and Mary sees him. Doesn't she see him? And she says, Rabbi. And what does he say to her? Don't touch me that could be an insult right but if you don't know the function you don't know what he's doing because in that moment he's acting as the high priest on the day of atonement carrying the blood into the holy place and cannot be touched by the people you see so when you understand his function you understand what he is doing when he comes back then they can touch him feel me put but when you understand my function, you'll understand what I'm doing, and it comes out of my... Because I'm, I am the high priest from the Old Testament that you read about, and now I'm carrying my blood. So Mary actually saw him, can I say this, on the spiritual day of atonement. And he knows exactly what the high priest cannot be touched when he's carrying the blood into the holy place. All right, let's go to number uh, six. Six. Five Number five. this is a good one, by the way. This is called soteriology. In soteriology, very simple. it's the doctrine or the thought of salvation. <laughs> this by itself, brothers and sisters, has been the cause of many arguments, I promise you this: Who can be saved? <laughs> can you be lost after you've been saved? one saved always saved this is the cause of many many arguments do you need to speak in tongues to be saved is it imperative for you to be baptized to be saved this is the argument can i say this of the church down through the centuries how do we understand the doctrine of salvation soteria let me show you what the word means the word soteria i found it to be very interesting it's the word for rescue so if you're going to rescue someone soteria you rescue them from something salvation is the doctrine of rescue god has right Isn't that what we say you have rescued my my life that's what salvation is someone has rescued us you get the idea that we were sinking, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peace, right? That's, that's soteria. We were sinking in something, sold in something, lost in something, and someone having the ability to rescue us has rescued us. Paul uses an analogy in the book of Romans. He says that we were sitting there on the slave auction. And we were we were sold into something and someone has to come along and do what buy us pay a price for us but is he wrong you are not your own you've been bought with a price and the the, the analogies in scriptures are phenomenal because in the ancient world not that we're trying to glorify slavery it's it's a heinous crime against humanity but taking the analogy from the ancient world when you went to the auction block and you bought a slave that slave had the name of its previous owner on him or her you then had to take the slave do you know the first thing you did when you took the slave home what do you think you did you washed the slave isn't that serious You took the slave, you washed the slave, you somehow found a way to get off that name. Then you placed your name on that slave, and that slave became your property. That's amazing, isn't it? Maybe there's a place for baptism in there. Acts 2.21, the Bible says, He that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be rescued, saved. That's what soteriology is. How are we saved? how does god rescue us if he rescues us can we be lost are we in his hands doesn't matter what we do or does he rescue us and our choices matter to make sure that we stay rescued these are all questions that we're going to ask and we're going to show you how these things work out in the new testament primarily let's go one step further ecclesiology i think this is number six ecclesiology. Everyone should know this right away. What are we studying? The doctrine of the ecclesia or the church. And again, I'm going to say this to you. This one, I was speaking to some of our elders last Saturday and I was emphasizing this again. I'm going to emphasize this even for people online. I believe that we need to get the understanding of the ecclesia right. It's it's a big part of our challenge. Part of the challenge is, and you're going to see in the definition, we're using the doctrine of the church to talk about places that we go to. The Bible does not refer to the church as a place that we go to. The Bible refers to the church as people in places, not places where people go. So I'm going to show you in a minute. When, when the Lord thinks about the church, he does not think about 49 Carl Hall Road. Say amen to that somebody. Help me out. When he looks for the church, he doesn't keep his eyes here. So at about um, 8.30, when everyone's gone, in his mind, what does not exist here? You sure you believe that? When we leave here, he follows you home and he sees you as the church. This continues to be what it always was, a building of concrete and the only time this becomes the church is when you come here but how we have talked about it over the can I say centuries we have created it as a place we go to the problem with that is we then create dichotomous thinking church is over (laughs) so if church is over where are you going (laughs) you see what I'm saying And then you wait for what? Church to do what? Start again. The problem with that is we now localize what is not to be localized. We time stamp what is not to be time stamped. And we then make church a Sunday or whatever, a Wednesday evening reality, when church is who you are. So when we deassemble, the church goes out into the world. When we gather here, the church assembles itself. Thus, this place is the assembling of the church. So one of the definitions we have to think about is church has to be anthropological. It has to be people-centered, not place. It cannot be place. And if you get this right, when we move to the book of Revelation, you're going to see that when John asked, to, uh, he says to the angel please show me the bride then the Lord shows him a city doesn't he coming down from heaven but di- he didn't ask to see a city he said show me the the bride the lamb's wife and because we think of place the way we do we then believe that John is showing or the angel is showing John a place we're going to when this life is over But he's not doing that. He's showing people as a place for God. We are the city that is set on a cannot be hid. So once we get the ecclesia right, the ecclesiology right, you will see that anywhere we are in the world, the church is present. The church is really not absent from the world. The church is really not active in the world. There is a difference. Anyone going to work tomorrow? Hands up if you're going to work. Shout out to me where you work. Just shout out to me where you work I've Just, University of Toronto. The church is in the University of Toronto tomorrow. So this idea that the church is not in society, that's not correct. The church is not active in society, but very much present in the world. And so because we hold to that thinking, we are very active here. You see the problem? very active here but the problem is but shouldn't say there really isn't any major problems here if you understand what i'm trying to say yes i know that the worship leader may not get along with the background vocalist i know that the elder may not like the elder, but that's not really a seismic issue do you follow what i'm saying so because we're so active here and less active out there there goes to the dogs and thus that's why we can't understand this When he speaks to his people, he says, Ye are the salt of the earth, and you're the light of the world. So our Ecclesia is very, very important. Watch. This is what the word Ecclesia means, or Ecclesia. It means called out or called out ones. Someone has called us out of something called us, watch, out of darkness into his marvelous light. So a call has gone out and people have responded to the Oh, the call. And those who respond to the called are the called out ones. The ecclesia. That's what church is. It's a study of those who have been called out. It's a doctrine of those who have been called called out. That's that's my definition. Church is the community of the called out. This is why you've got to be careful. Can I say this as you're writing? Be careful when you judge other people and say they're not in the church. (laughs) You can't do that. Number one, you didn't call them. (laughs) That's the most important one. It doesn't matter what Um, What's over there? what, What sign is over the building? You and I didn't call them. And we don't know what they heard. So it's very dangerous to say, because you don't believe this, you're not in the church. So now you start seeing that the church is really a global community of people, listen, that God is talking to. That's very important. They may not all agree on everything, But you can't dismiss the fact that God is talking to people globally. My danger when I was coming up was I I saw the church. In fact, I didn't see it. I was taught. I was taught the church as denomination. And of course, denomination has its accompanying doctrine or teachings. And those who were outside of this denomination were not considered to be a part of the, the church. That's very, very dangerous. It's the community of the called out, it's, 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 watch, it's a community without walls. And wherever God is talking, we've got to be careful that we don't dismiss what others have heard. Very significant here. So there, there's something called the Old Testament Ecclesia. So again, when you think of church, you may be quick to think, oh no, you mean New Testament, no, not necessarily. Because remember, it's a community of those who God has. Hosea 11, God says of Israel, Out of Egypt have I called my my son. So when Moses goes down there and says, Come out, we're going out, that's God calling Israel out. So in the book of Acts, Philip calls them the church that was in the wilderness. Can I ask you a question? Was he talking about a building in the wilderness? (laughs) He was talking about 1.5 million people going this way into promise, and he calls them the church in the wilderness. Old Pentecostal folks will say, come to the church in the Wildwood, (laughs) because the church existed before the coming of Jesus Christ. Anyone that God is calling out, that's his ecclesia. In Greek culture, an ecclesia was actually a body of citizens. A body of citizens. That was an ecclesia. We are of the citizenship of heaven. He's called us out. And of course, everyone knows this the New Testament ecclesia. Jesus says, Upon this rock I'll build my ecclesia. Again, you see how the Lord takes control of it. The church is not oromikos. It's not Valentine, it's not Peter Slocum, it's not Mary Sue, it's no. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. If we would step out of the way and let him build it, the gates of hell would not prevail. Do you know that our assignment is not to build church? Our assignment is to express kingdom. I will build my church, but to you I will give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's really where our work is. Our work is figuring out how do we express the kingdom of God in this world while allowing Him, watch, to build us. When He says, I'll build the church, He's talking to you. He says, I'm going to take it upon myself to build you and to make sure that if you allow me to build you, there's no weapon formed against you that can prosper. That is the church of the New Testament and we're going to talk as we're going through and then the last one, it's five minutes to eight. We've done very well tonight. This is this is an academy, by the way. The best and the brightest are here tonight. Absolutely. I'm glad you're here. The best and the brightest are among us. This is the last one. Remember I told you there could be eight. If The eighth one would be anthropology, the study of man, humanity. But I'm going to put that in the works of God under theology. I'm gonna put anthropology as a work of God in creation. He created mankind in his image. But if you wanted to have eight, you could do that. And some theological books like the one uh, on the far back there has eight of them. I'm gonna go with seven to reflect the menorah. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end. It's the logos of how we study the end. The end of a thing is called the eschaton. All right, and again, In this particular area, the word eschaton means last things or end, last things. It shall come to pass in the last days. These things shall happen in the latter times. So whenever we're talking about prophetic endings to something, we're talking about eschatology. Please keep in mind, eschatology is found both in the Old Testament books, like Daniel speaks about the time. Seal up the book, Daniel. For the time of understanding is at the end. Jesus talks about eschatology in the Gospels. Matthew 24, tell us what shall be the sign of these things and the end and your coming. And he goes in this long chapter about what's going to look like in the end, nation against nation, wars here, pestilence. That's eschatology. And of course, the most famous book in the Bible that Christians go to for eschatology, the book of the Revelation. All right, we're talking about last things. Last things are also very difficult to understand. Watch, if you don't understand first things. See how that works? To understand last things, you must understand first things. And can I take it one step further? And middle things, <laughs> then endings. And the worst thing you can do is forget about the middle and the beginning and rush to the end and realize that it's all connected anyhow. So these are some of the subjects we come across, things like the rapture. I'll give you the questions that the saints have been asking for years. Do we get out of here before this tribulation? (gasps) right? That's what we're asking, right? Is the rapture before the great tribulation that we reap? We find out that the world is going to be really in a bad shape. Does God pull us out of here? Do we go through the tribulation? Are we pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? <laughs> you have all these different philosophies or positions on what happens, what is this tribulation period that Jeremiah speaks about, that Daniel speaks about, jesus speaks about what exactly is that the time of jacob's troubles what what is that we also have this millennium thousand year period are we here do we come back with the lord rule and reign with him for a thousand years satan is bound is that really what happens what is the thousand year these all fall under eschatology the judgment who stands before the throne of christ who stands at the great white throne judgment these are all eschatological questions that we're asking ourselves study of the end and that's the end i thought that was marvelous so here's what we're going to do can i ask you let's take some time think about these these things because what we're going to do next week is we're going to finally open the book of genesis and we're going to go through it i've got four lessons prepared on the book of genesis what I don't want to do is, I don't want to sit there laboring verse by verse by verse. But I want to show you how to understand the book, and I want it to be your job now to go to the book. So I'm going to show you in these four lessons how we can understand the authorship, themes of the book, some critical themes, outlines of the book over four lessons. Then I'm going to say to you, go now read the book of Genesis and allow the Holy Spirit with all that you've taken in to open the eyes of your understanding so you can understand that particular book. And we're gonna then, when we do this, we're gonna pull on some of these things that we've spoken about, the exegetical context of certain things, the the theology of certain things in these books so that we can broaden our scope and understand it. And we'll do one thing when we end every book, I'm gonna make sure that we understand it, what the original audience heard, how we see Jesus in the book, and what the book of Genesis means to us today, what we can do in walking away with that, all right? And I think it's gonna really help a lot of us. And I'm bold enough to say that I do not have all the answers, nor do I ever want to pretend that I have all the answers to the book of Genesis because I do not, but I think in this environment iron can sharpen iron and we can come to some conclusions. So let's take a few moments, Q&A period, I'd love to hear some questions. If not some questions, whether online or in person, I would also like to hear your thoughts, whether it was about the the, the subject of exegesis, uh, understanding the context, or even theology, I would love to hear some thoughts and questions. I think we're going to start over here. Are we going for a question? Let's go right here. And there's a microphone to my left, please. Uh, Yes,
1: Pastor. um, You touched on the the Holy Spirit. Now, in the scripture, in the New Testament, it says at one point, Jesus breathed on his disciple, and then another point, He told them to go tarry.
0: Do you have an explanation why you had to do that twice? Okay, so uh, you're actually in two Gospels. Um, The the one that he tells them to tarry is Luke 24. And someone can also do the quick pull up for me. In Luke 24, he says to them, I need you to tarry at Jerusalem until you be endued with power from from on high. Um, And then he also repeats that again in Acts chapter 1 to jerusalem the one where where he breathes on them that's john's gospel they, they come to the house he's in the house and he blows on them and he says receive the holy ghost and i think he goes on to say something like and whoever sins you remit they shall be remitted as well my thinking on that is because acts is quite clear that breathing on them did not give them the holy spirit I think what he did was he released something on them to prepare them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The reason why I believe that is because in the book of Acts they were there still waiting for it and then chapter 2 it simply says and when the day of Pentecost was fully come they were all in that one place and they were all filled. If they were filled in John's gospel then certainly that Acts chapter 2 would not make any sense. So my thinking, is just my thinking, that breathing on them prepares them to receive the Holy Spirit. Acts, they then fully receive the Holy Spirit. That's my thinking. Okay. Okay? And
1: my second question is when you touch about Mm -hmm. that we are the church and we shouldn't call the building itself a church. Yes. um, Is there another name to call the building if the building is not a church? Yeah, the building. (laughs)
0: So could I call it no sanctuary? And, and of course, of course. So for instance, and it's just, again, all I'm simply saying is, be careful how you use words because words create mentalities. And that's been the danger. So of course, if I try, I don't always get it right because I fall into that trap as well. But I try not to tell myself, Orm, you're going to church today. Because then church seems to be something other than me. It seems to be somewhere I'm going to and departing from. So I try to find other words. I, I'm going to service today. I'm going to the house of God. I'm in the sanctuary because I want to train myself to believe that I am the church, and that's all it. Because I'm telling you, and Pastor Val is sitting here. This is more simpler than just a, a conversation about grammar. It takes us to places where, when we really begin to teach how the kingdom of God works in the world, if you localize the church, it's hard for people to see the church in the world. And that's the greater danger. There are people sitting in companies. You'll have 10 Christians in a company, and they don't think the church is there. They don't think that the church is present in that company. And so they will end up, watch, inviting people to their church. (laughs) Did you see what I'm saying? Not realizing that every day that they're interacting with them, they're actually coming in contact with the church. This is another reason why behaviors can be modified here and there. Because when you're here, you think you are where? In church. When you're there, you're at work. No. When you're there, the church is at work. When we're here, the church is, can I say, in corporate service. And that's, that's really what's at the core of this. The way we use words then shapes our thinking, and our thinking shapes our behavior and then we start making i think mistakes along the way can i show you this jesus was the quintessential expression of the church and everywhere because he is he is the head of the church he is the body of the church we're members of his body and everywhere he went and this is one of the reasons why he wasn't trapped to the synagogue he wasn't inside the temple most of his ministry was at the marketplace the seashore on mountaintops he really had an outdoor ministry if you think about it but everywhere he went you got this impression that we call what we call church he was doing it everywhere so even the apostles the apostles did not have buildings you know that right the apostles did not they weren't these huge palatial buildings 10000 the apostles gathered in homes and the church congregated in homes and they broke bread from house to house. And everywhere they went, they saw that as the gathering of the church. We've lost the essence of that. And today what we now have are days when church is on. And days when church is off. And if you really think about that math, how many days are there in a week? Seven. And if, and if church is days, how many, how many days do we really go to church? Don't even say two. (laughs) You guys are special. You're here twice. (laughs) Most people go to church. One in seven to change the world. From 11, let's go even great, till two to change the world. Wouldn't it make more sense that seven days the church is operational? But there are specific times when the church gathers collectively. Wouldn't wouldn't it be easier for me to teach you that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him on Sunday at 11? It's easier for me to teach you and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. That's not location. That's not time and place. And I think that's the bigger issue that we're faced with. We're timestamping what shouldn't be timestamped and we're localizing what shouldn't be localized. And I need you to walk out of here tonight seeing yourself as the church. Fair? Thank you for that, by the way. Yes, sir. Thank you,
1: Pastor. As always, thank you for the great teaching. I have a question that is from online. And this question goes, um, where does Rhema stand, uh, where, where is Rhema stands as it relates to doctrine of salvation? Is it once saved, always saved? Or do we is it once saved always saved or do we repent again and again that's a question from online
0: i know i know the question very very well i'm gonna tell you what i think about salvation I, i believe that god saves us clearly he's the author of our salvation he's the author and finisher of our salvation but i also believe that salvation is not robotics I don't believe that we don't participate in our salvation because we're not robots. I believe that God saves us and we are being saved and we shall be saved. In that middle stage, we have to participate. I, I don't believe this. I don't believe that I can be a Christian and just do anything I want, say anything I want, go anywhere I want, and then say, one saved... I think there are more scriptures that say that, and I think this is a safe place, I participate with Him. First Corinthians 6, you can check it for me, verse 1, We are workers together with Him, lest we frustrate the grace of God. I participate with Him. So part of my responsibility is obedience. The faith I have is not even mine, it's His. He has given me faith to believe faith to continue walking that's his faith galatians two twenty-two. i live by the faith of the son of god but i'm called to obedience and so he expects me to obey him in fact one of the ways that i know that i love him is that i keep his commandments i think there's danger and and when somebody says once saved always say what they're really teaching you may not know this it's called classic calvinism and there are different streams to Calvinism, different positions on that. And one of those streams is that once saved, always saved, God is so powerful that you can't be lost. I believe that God is powerful, but he does not overpower my choice. Because if he is so powerful that he overpowers my choices, he would have stopped Eve. <laughs> so there's this mysterious dynam- dynamic between the omnipotence of God and the fact that he's given me choice. And I see that from the very beginning. I see that all throughout scriptures. I'm asking myself another question. Two people are sitting in a service. They hear the word. One man gets up, another man doesn't get up. One responds and says, I give my life. They heard the same word. I also believe the same measure of faith was released to both of them. One person executed choice when faith is released. If you hear his voice today, because today is the day of salvation. What shouldn't you do? Harden not your heart. So as Christians, I would teach this. I think it's safer. I'm not saying that I'm omniscient on this. It's safer to say that God has saved me, and now I'm participating in the saving process. And whatever He tells me to do, for as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. My job is to obey Him. If He says, don't do that because I am saved, I won't do that. And listen, and if I happen to make a mistake and do that because I am saved, I repent of my sins. He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. So salvation, I think it's participatory. I'm not going to sit back because I think one saved, always saved, gives license for certain behavior. give you one more scripture. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So we participate in our salvation. He expects us to live a certain life, but he also understands that we are frail. He gives us room. You know, he gives you room to make mistakes. How many of you really believe that? Because God knows that if he doesn't give you room to make mistakes and we're prone to make mistakes, we're going to murder ourselves psychologically. He says that. If you say you don't have any sin, you make him out to be a liar. 1 John. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us so we can do one thing. He cleanses us so that we continue walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another and with him. My answer to that question is my position. I hope it's Ramah's position collectively. God has saved me. That's my spirit. But I'm participating in the saving of my soul daily i'm getting my mind renewed i'm asking him to give me a clean heart and i'm learning how to conform my will to his and when this is over i'm trusting that when i come back he's going to give me a glorious body that's what i believe about salvation and i don't and i should not play with sin does that sound like it helps a little bit absolutely does okay
1: it absolutely absolutely I think it does. Uh, is it also, is it, does it help to think about salvation the way you've thought it where it's a three-in-one process where your spirit is first saved and then there is the process of saving your soul and then yes. your body? And so that it's, it's, even though your spirit is instantaneously saved, but then there is the process of regenerating your soul and ultimately teaching your body to obey that which has already occurred.
0: I think that's the safest way. And that's what we've been teaching in this um, soul care series, remember? That really the essence, remember, salvation is actually the working backwards of what happened to Adam. Do you remember in Genesis, God says to Adam, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. But here's the question I ask you. When he ate and she ate of the fruit, did they die? How many people say, hands up if you say they died? Hands up if you say they didn't die. Right, so you see that there's there's an understanding there. But the word says, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. This is what I mean by understanding the text at a deeper level. Can I share what the Hebrew text says? In the day that you eat, watch this, dying you shall surely die. Does that make more sense? Dying you shall surely die. So the dying part now is his spirit. So immediately he's cut off from God. He's going to die because God connects with his spirit. Ultimately, over time, if he doesn't fix this problem, he's going to die how? Physically. If he dies physically without fixing this problem, he's going to die one more stage eternally. So time is to get him to fix this and not worry about this because God's going to give him a new one so that when he does physically die, now it's appointed unto men once to die, He can come back again and get a new body to clothe a new spirit salvation is watch number one it's regeneration of what died first so when a person gets saved the first thing that the holy spirit does is there's a regeneration of their spirit if you need a scripture ephesians 2 verse 1 and you have he quickened what does the word quicken mean well (laughs) give you a joke where i'm from Where I'm from, people in the services, they would do that and say, and they what are you doing? That's the quickening of the spirit. (laughs) The word quickening means, it's an English word, it means to bring to life. Quick and the dead, living and the dead. You have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. The first thing that God does is he regenerates. That's a powerful word. The word regenerate means to give you back the original gene. He regenes your spirit, brings it back to life. But you've got a soul that needs to be addressed, and you also have a body. What you were talking about, Val, is this. Now that my spirit is alive, I have the wherewithal to deal with my mind, my heart, and my will. That's why I need this process called time. Romans 12, verse 1. When I present my body, I'm actually renewing my mind. When I choose not to do what others are doing, I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. When I allow God's word into my heart, I'm purifying my heart desires and appetites. And when I learn to listen, he that hath an ear to hear, I'm conforming my will. Now what I'm doing is I'm matching the salvation of my spirit with the salvation of my soul. You see how that works? And then if I die by God's grace, having my soul right and my spirit right in the resurrection, I'm going to be clothed with a new body to match that. That's what I mean by salvation is a process. Does that help? Okay. Question? Here comes a question over here. Question over here. You've got ten, so we're good.
2: Pastor Michael, uh, going back to the church as the ecclesia, each of us we're called out. Yes. So I, I have been thinking about it. Some of the things that we do, then we as a church, we really don't need to do in the building. So like house dedication, we probably should be having house parties instead, gathering all the saints, assembling, breaking bread, and pretty much praying in the houses rather than saying, you know, well, this person needs to go there. And, and the same thing with baby, de- baby dedications. If you are the church and both of you are saved, you know, you should be able to dedicate your babies or your children on your own, <laughs> gather some friends who are also saved, and do the same thing. Like, I have been thinking about that. So I'm just You know, that the funny because... thing is,
0: the funny thing is, you're not wrong because you're describing the church at its purest state where everyone believes that they are a priest, that we are the priesthood of believers. Part of the danger along the way is that the church has created this dichotomy between those down there and those up here. You know that, right? So people down there, we created the dichotomy in the Middle Ages, they're called lay people. Uh-huh. People up here are called ministers. And the responsibility, which is to be shared, then falls on these people. And just like, as I said before, words matter, lay people do just that. They lay down. Just
2: lay down, yeah so that right. they leave it on us so the onus becomes ministers only and right. as long as you're reading the Bible you should be able to say my spirit is connected to the spirit of living God so right. I'm called out so I therefore can hold my baby up lift up my child to the Lord and pray over the, the baby in the most
0: ideal sense you should be able to do that and if you need the scripture to help you First Peter 2 I believe I'm in First Peter but somebody can check that for me and verses 9 and 10 and ye are a royal priesthood. You see, but I don't think that that's really bought in by people.
2: You get into trouble when you say stuff like that, actually.
0: You will get in trouble, but I don't know if it's bought in. I don't know if people sitting in congregations actually see themselves having the same authority, the same ability as those who are ordained in ministry. And so we do have that separation. And again, here's the problem. Once you separate, you actually minimize the amount of work that can be done
1: mm-hmm.
0: question for you as you're talking in the nation of israel there were priests right they were called levites and the, how many tribes made up the israelite nation 12 12 and the one tribe levites mm-hmm. That's right and so we sort of take that too far because what we fail to understand is that one tribe served in the tabernacle or the temple and did specific things but when god saw the nation he saw them as a body of priests yes so the farmer if they did their job right the farmer was to be told that when he's in the field he's a priest in the field mm-hmm. the fisherman was to be told that when you are catching fish you're a priest unto god or a minister catching fish and that's what they missed they then felt Every generation falls it they then forgot that they were priests and they ran to the priests for everything the same thing has happened in the New testament church I believe
2: and and I, and I think um, uh, that is that that's a struggle right now between okay and I, I think maybe it's a fivefold ministry that needs to probably rear itself some more so then we know we have the office of the prophet the office of you yeah. know the the, the, the teacher, the pastor, the evangelist, the apostle. But you know, each person in their homes are called out and they're able to do whatever the Bible says because as long as you believe, it can be done, right? Okay. Second thing one
0: one second. Sorry. Everyone Google this term when you when you go home tonight. The priesthood of believers. You will see the amount of study that's been done on that. The priesthood of believers. That's been studied for many years throughout the church age. What is the priesthood of all believers, which is what you're talking about? What duties can all believers engage in?
2: And and just another thought. Um, In the olden days. um,
0: How old are you going? How far are we going?
2: Way, way there when the church led. Okay. And the church influenced everything. See, so it's as if we're twisting things, we're turning things. So now the church is down here and everybody else is leading. And. Like, I was raised Roman Should, Catholic. Okay, so I'm
0: going to ask you the question now. Mm-hmm. Should the church be leading?
2: Well, I think so, because I... And what does if, that
0: mean? What does that mean? When you say, I want you to just talk, let's have a conversation. Church leading, what does that mean for well, you?
2: Okay, church leading, it's it's, it's it's more like govern government. So we, we govern. Okay. So for me, I'm thinking, okay, so I was, like I was saying, I was raised Roman, Roman Catholic. So one what we did, we had... Pretty much everything in common because mm-hmm. everything was done in one church, but it was how were you spread raised? across. I well, let's not go no, there. No, I just want I you was... to say, it.
0: "How were you raised?"
2: <laughs> I was raised in a Roman Catholic with a Roman Catholic. I want Catholic everyone just doctrine. pause for a
0: second. I'm I'm not. Yes. I'm doing something intentional. <laughs> Did you hear what she said? She was raised Roman Catholic, yes. and yes. we had everything in common. Mm-hmm. Over on this side, we beat up on our Roman Catholic brothers, but they understand how the church really works. Functionally,
2: functionally, yes.
0: It is their doctrine that needs work. Yes. But when you talk about how the church is structured, Mm -hmm. how to get everyone to see the same thing, believe the same thing, to the degree that it becomes almost inherently cultural, Mm -hmm. that you are born Catholic. Yeah. They understand. So I'm going to give you a practical way. You and I as Catholics, no matter how upset we are at Father Joe, Or priest Bill, we cannot go across the street and open our own Catholic church. No, yeah, that's that's yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know, Father Bill gave communion to so and so. I'm really upset. I'm going. You cannot do that. But when you come over here, where we are filled with the Spirit, am I right? In fact, the Spirit's coming out of us. People can drink it from us. We just have one issue, and we're gone our own thing the roman catholics i'm going to say this in their credit they have it right structurally the structure is really good. it is yeah. their doctrine yeah. that has led them in the wrong direction yeah. but when you talk about having a common head yes. having all things common speaking all the same thing yes. they understand that well Everything and as a result they are the most dominant expression of christianity yes
2: so so what I cause and, and mm-hmm. when you said if if past, um if Father Bill had a problem with you, and you had a problem with Pastor Bill. Um Father Bill, you actually had to go back and confess your problem to him eventually, because we had to just make certain everything is there. So for me, governorship is then um because we we have the light, so to speak, then mm-hmm. if we are um, leading in terms of know the president comes to someone from the church if the church had everything in common because that's part of the problem if we all have the same standard then it would be the the standard of the church so then if something was happening in the world that's outside of the church
0: we could speak to it
2: because we are not in it and i mean it's a it's a it's a whole debate because if i'm the church and i sit with the president i'm the chief of staff then the church is actually with um, the president so the church is in politics yes, if you're in politics right right so but i don't think people are seeing it that way and the question is how then do we get others to see that
0: i don't and have an that's answer a for, a for that
2: thought. <laughs> yeah that's food for
0: thought I, I because the reason why i say i don't have an i'm not saying that yeah. i really because it's a very long conversation yes, how do is. we get there it's
2: a thesis yeah. but here's
0: one simple way to look at this though I think that I'm a pretty good pastor. I think that I hear from God. I think we've got a great ministry here. If I were to travel to the United States, no one would come and see me. Maybe not. If the Pope left the Vatican.
2: millions. Yeah. millions. What we
0: don't understand, regardless of what our issues are with their doctrine, it's the power of unity.
2: Yes, yes.
0: And believe it or not, brothers and sisters, I'm gonna say I'm gonna show you something. I believe that God is bound to his principles more than he's bound to persons he's no respect for persons where people are following his principles they get the results so anytime we would figure this unity thing out figure this structure thing out figure this order thing out you would begin to see their god commanded the blessing yes and if we were to look at the people that were constantly saying we don't agree with them and just take a look at what they have done right and we're intelligent enough to also know what they have done wrong So I believe that that there's a lot of blood on Catholic hands. I believe that. It's coming out now all over the world, Canada, all those things. Mm -hmm. But I'm not foolish enough to think that I can't look at what they have done structurally Structurally. and see how it resembles the kingdom of God more than what we have done with all the Holy Spirit we have. So we can take the good, you know, take the baby throughout the bathwater, bring it over here. And one of the things I believe Catholics understand is that they trust, even if they don't like, they trust their leaders. Yes. And they, whatever the Pope says, yeah. I don't know if I've ever told you this story. There's a, there's a doctrine in Roman Catholicism. They may not teach you this, but if you study them, you, it's called ex cathedra. And there's a moment in a papal reign where the Pope can say, I'm going to sit in the chair ex-cathedra means he's going to speak from the chair. And if he ever says, I'm speaking from the chair, that becomes almost akin to scripture. He is infallible in that moment. Yes. And if he wants to address Roman, Roman Catholics globally, and he says, I'm going to speak ex-cathedra, it's as if God is speaking to the Roman Catholic body. They understand how God works better than we do. They understand structure better than we do. They understand kingdom. Kingdom. From God to Christ to Papa. From Papa to Cardinals. From Cardinals to Bishops and Fathers to Congregations. They understand that flow from Psalm 133. We take this thing. Here's our approach. God speaks to me too, you know. I didn't hear what Pastor heard. God spoke to me last night. And what we end up doing we make God the author of confusion where he's whispering something in your ear he's whispering something different in your ear he's whispering something different in your ear and then he's telling us all to unify yeah. that's confusion and God is not the author of confusion thank you pastor on our journey thank you for leading us there I hear the minstrel playing and I, think, I, I sense the Holy Spirit so let me use this as an opportunity to talk to our ministry. I will not stand here and tell you that I speak ex-cathedral because I don't speak ex-cathedral. I speak very much fallible. (laughs) But I do believe that God speaks to us as a congregation and it resonates in our spirit. Our job as a body of people is to ask God, what is it that you're saying to us that we can unify around? How can we, number one, be the church? How can the church get behind a vision that you've given to someone? How can we trust, listen to this, a fallible leader? Can I tell you how? By trusting God. If people would understand this, we don't trust people first. We trust God first. Because of our trust in God, when people fail, the Lord picks us up. That's another way of understanding when father and mother forsake us. Because our trust is ultimately in him. And those who trust in the Lord shall never be put to shame. See, God, we trust you. We know that you've got an assignment, an agenda for the world. We know that you call men and women. I am one of them. You're one of them. How do we put aside all of our agendas? And how do we accomplish Psalm 133? I'll quote it for you, then we'll end at 830. Behold means open your eyes and look how good God is good. How pleasant, peaceful it is for brethren to dwell, to live, to abide together in unity. It is like the precious anointing that's upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard. Watch this: the head is not Oramiko, the head is Christ. Unity starts by understanding that God has anointed Christ with power. And then when he chooses someone, a man or a woman, that same anointing should cascade from the head, which is Christ, onto the next person. It shouldn't stop. It's going to go down the beard, down to the skirts. That means what I'm waiting for as I'm in this congregation, I'm waiting for the anointing that's sitting on Jesus's head to reach my life so that I will know, you ask the question, that I am authorized to be the church in society. It is like the dew that's on Mount Hermon that begins to melt and begins to run down. And at one point it's just a little trickle, but then it forms the Jordan and it keeps going and it creates a lake called Galilee, but it doesn't stop in that lake. It keeps rushing down and it empties out into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. You know, that means from the highest place to the lowest place, everyone is touched by what's on the head. Now we close the verse by saying this, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. If we can get our minds around that unity thing as believers, as members of the body, as people of color, as Asians, whatever it is, if we can get our minds around that and say we're going to fight for the unity of the body of Jesus Christ and we're going to do that by fighting for the unity of Rhema. All the things that Satan does against Rhema or this ministry, it's designed to do one thing, it's to destroy the process of unification. That's all it's designed to do. Someone has to be bigger enough and say, okay, I know she made a mistake, but our unity is far more important. I know you slip, but our unity is far more important than anything else. Would you stand on your feet in this moment? Even at home, I hope that you receive something tonight. Our unity is the most important thing. The fact that we can walk together in agreement. Slip your hands up just for a moment before we go. And when the day of Pentecost shall come again, I'm praying. I pray that we will all be together in one place. I pray that we'll all be of one accord, of one mind. And God, suddenly, a change will come to this world suddenly something from heaven would sit upon each and every one of us and we would only speak as the spirit gives us utterance unify this house thank you for taking us in this direction tonight God unify the house of Ramah and father put to flight every weapon of the enemy every tongue that rises against us condemn it every divisive activity expose and nullify it that we might be one even as you are one we're asking for this now for the world languishes and waits for the manifestation of the sons of God and I declare that's you and I the church of our Lord Jesus Christ May the Lord bless us tonight. May his grace be sufficient for us. And when we're weak, may he strengthen us. May you go with the blessing of God to change and to affect every life. God bless you tonight. We love you so much. We'll see you next Wednesday.